Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining Rusty Moy again with episode 101, How to Fix America. I will be discussing a little bit about infrastructure and what's going on in uh, New York and California and throughout. Um, this is an issue that all of us um, may feel is a, a big deal with the infrastructure and others may not even be aware of. But guys, infrastructure is real and it's happening. Um, I must say, on my recent trip to New York and having been to Cali lately, uh, New York and California, you see the infrastructure projects within the potential to make cities more livable and equitable. Okay, and that's what a lot of people feel is going on with the infrastructure. It makes it more livable. And some individuals may argue that. Well, what I will say, such has been the state of infrastructure in the U.S. for decades. It fixed to get put off until they were absolutely necessary. And the U.S. airports, roads and public transportation draw frequent comparisons to those in nations with few far fewer resources. Meanwhile, countries in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East have leaped ahead with so-called smart cities, high-speed trains, and eco-friendly buildings. What I did notice in 2019, which is really funny, the U.S. ranked 13th in the world in a broad measure of infrastructure quality, down from the fifth place around 2002. According to uh, research with the World Economics and uh, other reports that I have been researching lately. But COVID-19, as we all know, has pushed the much uh, touted idea of infrastructure week. Closer to reality, U.S. cities and states have rebound from the pandemic faster than anticipated and experiencing a double windfall of tax revenue and federal federal rescue aid okay with this momentum building it looks like cities across the country are identifying with these projects and have the potential to transform the communities they serve and beyond so with this pandemic i've learned that there has been more and more buildings being constructed right in our city outside and that's an issue for all of us but i will dive in a little bit more after a year of staying close to home, I've noticed a dozen locations to create a cross-country road trip that includes initiatives of small and large in progress and proposed fully financed and is yet unfunded. That's what I learned by just being home and writing and journaling and researching. We spend a lot of time being home, all of us, but I've spent my time thinking brainstorming and taking this as a learning experience but transforming this into my podcast and sharing it with you guys the journey started on the i-81 highway running through sea caucus which where one of my friends live new york and ends in the sinking soil of the san quaquin valley of california on the route are visions for a state-of-the-art airport in orlando florida and parking lot tunnel playground in tennessee Guys, this is real. This is real stuff. And coincidentally, in picking locations, we considered how certain projects could help in fighting against climate change, what I mentioned in episode 101, 
recently and making more equitable cities that improve livability for all residents. But this list can go on and on, and I can talk about this all day, by no means being exhausting to Brahmi you and others. There are many topics, including brand, no, many topics, including broadband internet access, childcare, and subways that are not tackled here, but will be in the future articles to come, journals, newsletters, and much, much more. Bridges, I've noticed, like Princeton's, have continually been held up as crumbling USA infrastructure. And the coming wave of projects will certainly be more about maintenance than fresh construction efforts on the scale, okay? But quality of life improvements will play a bigger role too. But what I've noticed, the ongoing systematic debate over what is and what is not infrastructure doesn't bind well for the completion of projects, many in which we require years of planning and financial follow-through. And whether the topic is as the environment, education, job placement, minorities, or anything else, there are both immediate and long-term efforts for the actions we take now, especially for the ones we do not take. This is an issue state by state, county by county, country by country. See Caucus New York, New York, Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Charlotte, North Carolina, Orlando, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Tennessee, Indianapolis, Austin, Texas, Denver, and, Va- and San, Qu- San Jaquan Valley, California. Okay? All of these that I just mentioned is my table of contents in my mind. All of these areas, all of these cities are in the mix of the infrastructure. They are the reconnected and divided communities of of infrastructure. The elevated span that carries the I-81 through Sea Caucus wasn't unique when it was constructed in the late 1950s. But what you must know is the fueled by the federal funding that came with Uh, Scores of highways were built through hearts of America's cities, speeding commerce, and suburban growth. Yet, devastating the communities, they replaced in erecting physical barriers that would last generations. See, caucus was no exception. The I-81 viaduct displaced an estimate of 1,300 residents from a predominantly African-American neighborhood and left an eyesore and pollution for those who remained. Think about that. What I do know is there's about 1.9-2.0 billion proposals to tear down the viaduct would be sea caucus into a league of its own with the structure reaching the end of the design life. New York State's preferred plan for replacing it would restrict the services street grid with a boulevard called Business Loop 81. How does that sound? And it would also add bike lanes, improve pedestrian access, green space, revamp surrounding intersections. The state's preliminary environmental impact statement released around 2019, maybe 2020 during the pandemic, found that this approach would reduce vehicle miles traveled and vehicle emissions. 
Also, in 2014, I've noticed a group of planners and residents determining that the community grid approach could create nearly, I don't know, about $150 million in real estate market value and about, I don't know, $6.1 million in annual taxes by opening up developmental land. So how does that help us? Where, did, where does that put us at? How do you feel about that? Well, a lot of things may come to you your mind and and these thoughts that you may have. But listen to me further, guys. The state has a budget of 8 million. No, the state has a budget of 800 million for the project to break ground in 2022, which is next year, with the expectation that this amount will include federal funding. There may be signs that our president, Joe Biden, touting the project to about 2 trillion American job plans And maybe a program that will reconnect neighbors and cut off historic investments. Maybe. But what about the Sea Caucus residents that are confident about their area? What about the New York affiliations of the American Civil Liberties Union? What about the black and brown residents living near the viaduct that could still harm by construction in future? uh, I don't know, a state that does not take steps like setting up a land or a trust for housing and working closely with neighbors to minimize noise and pollution, right? The organization in 2020 on the issues it concludes, given the historical injuries sustained by those who lived in the 15th Ward and the, pro- the proximity of the current community to the anticipated construction is particularly vital to address their needs. I've been said to address the needs, but most importantly, make big building energy efficient. Back in 2018, New York City passed what might be the most ambitious climate bill in the nation, the Climate Mobilization Act. Maybe it was 2019. The centerpiece is a mandate for owner of buildings that are 25,000 square feet or larger. Okay. And This is something that has happened. But what's most important? Most important is, like I said, make big building energy efficient. That's what all of us want. That's all we desire. Okay? Let's make it make sense, guys. But what I will say... A year later, of course, an even bigger disruption arrived in the form of the pandemic. A vacant office building undermining rents across the city. Real estate interests that already vocally opposed the law got to work overturning it. The New York governor and many others may propose a budget. And this budget may be conformed to 2022, which is next year. Can that help us? Does that matter? Is that going to be a drastic change? Instead of making adaptions to reduce the carbon footprint of the buildings, property owners could satisfy their obligations, guys, through at least 2030 by purchasing renewable energy credits instead. That's what we need. And the end of climate advocates of the air. The state budget agreed, maybe sometime in April, May, preserves that Climate Mobilization Act as it is. But what I do know to achieve the same goals, we will be even bigger lift for landlords in the wake of the pandemic. 
Even with the reduced occupancy levels, the city is still roughly 10% short of its compliance target for greenhouse gas reductions. No, 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 no. Maybe meeting the mandate will come at a cost of an estimate, I don't know, four, maybe six billion, and all the owners of a roughly 50,000 approximately building with an offset energy saving and capital undergrades that will probably pay dividends down the road. And what does that do for us? How does that help us? Are we still going to be in the middle of climate change, infrastructure, bad air, and many other issues? New York landlords may find relief from a number of federal proposals totaling to about 68 billion, maybe 70, that will likely wind up in the American job plan. Okay, so there'll be jobs available. The proposal includes 18 billion in weatherization assistance for building owners, as well as a new 10 billion consumer electrification rebate and job training program. Boosting the New York landmark climate bill and that the city can pave the way for others to follow the suit and build an industry for energy efficient technologies and services. But will this bill help individuals? Will it help make things better? I'm a New Yorker myself, so I'm a little concerned on how that's going to help, how that's going to make an impact. But most importantly, Rusty Moore is more concerned about fixing public school buildings. We have seen a lot during the pandemic. And we want our children to be safe, right? Safety first. We don't want anyone to get harmed, anyone's child to be harmed because of not meeting the safety uh, guidelines in the buildings. Over a swirling day in September, I don't know, maybe September 2019, roughly, 50 Baltimore City public schools sent students home early. I don't know if you guys remember that because they didn't have air conditioning. Outdoor temperatures pushed to about 90 to 100 degrees inside the classroom. The temperatures approached or surpassed 85 degrees Fahrenheit. These kids were sent home. It was only the second day of school. Was that fair? I doubt it not. But dismissing students earlier, open late and counseling days entirely because of the stream temperatures is not uncommon. Between 2014 and 2019, Baltimore students missed 1.5 million hours of learning equivalent to about 221,000 full days because of the building-related problems that could have been resolved. So these children could get a substantial education. Most importantly, 80% of those lost hours were due to the lack of heating or cooling. Not that the children didn't want to learn, not that they couldn't learn, but heating or cooling. So guys, if you listen to this Episode 101 with Rusty Moy. On the other days, students missed out on learning because of issues like water leaks, burst pipes, electrical outages. As the city began bringing students back for in-person learning earlier this year, officials promptly scrambled to upgrade several facilities, inadequate ventilation systems, and much, much more. Because the children are going to be getting back in their seats quite soon. Earlier this year, what I do know, Baltimore District uploaded... So much information, but most importantly, they updated a 2017 plan for new AC units, electrical upgrades in all facilities, and the lack of them at a cost of $40,000 to $50,000 per classroom. With more than 100 students tallying up to about 1,300 classrooms needing a cooling system, the district estimates the cost to be about $54 million. 
to about 68 million. That's on top of the ambitious 1.1 billion initiative for 2013 to rebuild the renovating up to 28 school buildings, known as the 21st Century School Building Program. 17 schools have opened since with the help of these investments, with eight more under construction. That leaves our children in a wing, once again. Lack of education, lack of knowledge. Where does that put our children? I think you get the gist. Still, the entire district faces a $5 billion maintenance backlog due to decades of disinvestment, underfunding, and project mismanagement. Out of 150 buildings, 95 are more than 50 years old, making them some of the oldest in the most deplorable learning facilities in the Merlin area. For many of the same reasons, the infrastructure problem facing Baltimore's aging schools persuasive across the U.S., more than half of Americans' public school districts have buildings that are in desperate need of repairs, replacements, HVACs, and plumbing systems. And why are they not being fixed? Why is this happening, guys? That leaves mostly children of color to bear the brunt of poor school conditions. Baltimore public schools serve nearly 70,000 students, 90% of whom are black and brown, and more than half of whom are from low-income families. Not only do students' staff suffer from health problems because of poor air quality, the loss of instructive time, it can contribute to a higher absence and dropout rate, and overall lower student achievement. These consequences often follow students into their adulthood. Is this what we want for our children, our baby boomers? No, we don't. So continue listening in. Modernizing Americans' union stations, guys. In Washington, D.C., union stations are among the busiest rail hubs in the country and is showing signs of the age. As a southern airmark, Northeast quarter and anchor for numerous regional rail lines. Its century old track and platform configuration squeezes passengers' capacity and slows average trip times. On top of that, the station serves as an inner city bus hub in the DC busiest metro station, yet it is disjointed, lays out, sends Greyhound customers to an upstairs parking garage and transit risers down a cracky escalator. They're almost parts of stations that aren't accessible to people with disabilities. We all have family members with disabilities and they should be served properly, adequately, with care. With knowing that there's 10.7 billion in Washington Union Station expansion project, why are seniors and people with disabilities suffering? Proposes to transform all of the above Modernization rail passenger platforms I mentioned, tracks, concourses uh, with triple capacity of trains while faculties and facilities for inner city buses and transit pedestrians and cycling assets would be enhanced. Also slate or plans for a mixed use of development rising over the station and new public space aimed at weaving the 1907 arts and grand dame into the surrounding neighborhoods okay on top of the speeding travel times up to the northeast quarter quarter sorry and improving connections for the ultra diverse dc region 
The plan is projected to create 67,000 constructive jobs and generate new tax revenue and housing stock for the capital city. But however, after nearly a decade planning for the project is nearly complete, yet it moves into the design phase. The project led by the Federal Railroad Administration with Airmark and the Union Station Redevelopment Corporation remains underfunded. Guys, look at the big picture of what's going on. This is not a mistake. This has actually happened. We want to make sure it meets the needs of the next century to make change. And that's not it for us. With a quick commercial break, I will be back with a continuation of infrastructure across America and some other ideas and concepts that we must talk about and know and understand that it's real. Infrastructure, our environment, climate change, these are all real issues going on in America. And we must come to an understanding that we need to realize it, accept what's going on, but most importantly, do something about it. I thank you guys so much for being a part of episode 101 with infrastructure across America and what's going on right here in America. And I'm going to continue on. Make home care a more stable career. I want to discuss that a little bit. It's nothing wrong with home care. It's nothing wrong with helping someone. But I want to discuss making it a stable career. The agencies and companies that people have contracts with, with home care workers, provide no sick pay or vacation. Some do, some don't. But others have expanded during the pandemic. It taken the pandemic for opportunity with health insurance, with a sick pay, with hours and um, opportunity and more funding for unemployment for workers that were making 283 waiting tables. So now that they're home with unemployment, they're earning a little bit more. And that's still being uh, criticized. But I won't get into detail on that. But what I will talk about is making home care a more stable career. And you have individuals with hearing aids starting to expire. You have individuals that need health insurance but don't have it. But during this pandemic, they were able to be insured. So they were able to find a breakthrough and to find something that would be affordable. During the pandemic, there was agencies that found understaffed that could juggle 13 to 14 patients during an eight-hour shift. There were individuals that could find these opportunities. It's just not quality service, people say. They're getting tired of it. It's not meeting the bills working in the home care industry. And why do people say that? I did a recent interview with a young lady 
And she lives in North Carolina, where she states her minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. The national median wage for home care workers is about $12.12 an hour. And figure that has remained persistently low over the past decade. According to my recent research on PHI, a nonprofit that researches and advocates for the care work industry, 54% of home care workers are on public assistance and nearly half live in poverty. Across the USA, women and people of color are paid less than white men in the field, despite the fact that they are disproportionately unrepresented in it as a part of American job plan. What has been said to us, proposed spending of $4 billion to booster home and community-based services. People would debate this and say, exactly, how will this happen and will it help me, a person of color, the brown people? How does it help? The federal government currently splits the cost of home care with every state, matching state payments by 50% to 78%, adjusting Medicaid spending could be one more or one way to inject new money into the existing program nationwide. The American Rescue Plan increased the Medicaid matching rate for home care by the 10% point across all states for one year while mandating the states could keep their funding level. Leading age of association of nonprofits that provide services to Asian advocates for extending that funding bump long term. More ambitiously, proposals would increase the federal match rate to 100%. But is it not certain that every state would opt into such a model or use those funds to compensate workers? A friend of mine said that it wasn't worth it for her. She didn't see the increase, but she's seen the increase recently during the pandemic as being a home health aide, home health aid worker. And also, she's currently feeling that where she's in her state, where she's residing, home and community-based services are, are reliable and helpful. For her now, however, such fundings are distributed supporting the people who provide home care services is key. She said that she deserves to be able to leave work knowing that we're able to get a paycheck that's enough to pay our bills. She do enjoy helping others and feeling great about herself, knowing that she can help someone that needs it most. So I'm glad that she shared that with me, that statement about home health care, because I didn't know much about it. I knew a little bit, but I wasn't very much informed. So having this interview with this home health hate, home health care worker made me more knowledgeable and helped me understand some of the struggles that individuals go through from day to day. So I know never to take anything for granted because nothing's owed to me. And you should never take anything for granted either because nothing's owed to you either. We should take it day by day and realize that we can come together to fix America. Episode 101 was how to fix America. We can come together and fix just the small things. And if you listen to this episode, listen to it once or twice, maybe three times. And you can see how we can come together and fix America. Infrastructure, climate change, poverty, wage gap, all of that. Coming together in America. Instead of me saying how to fix America, coming together in America. I thank you guys so much for listening in to Rusty Moy and being a part of this beautiful platform. Continuously follow me in all that I do and don't allow this to be your last opportunity to listen in to something creative, informative, but relatable. Right now.
I'm feeling you with the